ladies and gentlemen, you know you're in for a treat when you hear that sound because it means it's time for another episode of the Rec Poker Podcast Forums Edition brought to you by Running Aces Hotel, Racetrack, and Casino and Website Amp. Uh, well, my name's Jim Reed. You can learn all about me by going to rec.poker slash Jim. And because I have the best freaking job in the world, every week I get to be joined by this wonderful panel of rec poker wizards to talk about a forum post. So wizards, why don't you tell the world where they can meet you? Well, I'm Chris Jones. I'm 5x5 five five on Poker Stars and Twitter. I'm John Somsky. I'm Poker Geek MN everywhere. I'm Rob Washam, and I am Radman50 everywhere. Sorry, Kim. And I'm, it's okay. I'm Kim Kilroy. I'm pet vet everywhere except for the home game. And then I'm Fergie 56. Thanks for joining us again, Kim and all the wizards. I'm so excited to be here like I am every week. Every week we are playing against each other in the Rec Poker Nightly Home Game, trying to steal each other's play money chips and win the elusive bronze Rec Poker pin. And every week we take a post from the Rec.Poker forums and we talk about it here amongst the group. So this week, we're looking at a post by Marbles Jam, who has written in here before. And it's a, it's a very simple post, but we've got a, a more complicated answer for you, Marbles Jam. So um, Marbles Jam writes in and says, six-handed MTTs. I'm strongly considering entering a double-stack tournament at Canterbury, uh, which is played six-handed. I've played some six-max online, but it only in a sit-and-go format. How much should one open their ranges, open sizing, blind defense ranges, three betting frequencies, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, who has some thoughts? So I, I'll, I'll share my thoughts and then we'll open up uh, to the group here. So we're only going to talk about No Limit Texas Hold'em today. But even within the game of No Limit Texas Hold'em, there's a lot of different ways you can play. Um, turbos, slow formats, uh, freeze-outs, rebuys, Nine or ten-handed tables, as Marbles Jam points out here, six-handed tables, and there's even more variations than that. Um, knockouts, satellites, uh, there's, you can play cash, you can play sit-and-goes and double-or-nothings. There's a lot of different ways to play. Um, and there are edges to each of these different kinds of games, too. Different playing styles, different ranges, and so different approaches to poker you might find that you're actually better off playing in a particular variation than others because it just suits your natural game. So mostly when we talk about like a standard uh, No Limit Texas Hold'em game, um, in, in Rec Poker, we're talking about a nine-handed table um, with sort of like a standard time structure. And there's no, there's no bounties or anything like that. It's a freeze-out um, And usually, you know, the top 10% of the field or the top 15% of the field gets paid something. And that's kind of like the conventional poker tournament style that we talk about for the most part. Does anyone just on the panel, does anyone want to jump in and say to tweak that a little bit just as we get started? Or is that your, is that your sense as well? Okay. So whether it's a, whether it's a large field MTT or a small field MTT, um, usually there's going to be a few tables, um, nine people on each table. And that's what we're talking about. So the specific question that Marbles Jam has here is uh, about playing six max. So I'm not going to get too much into what it means for it to be a double stack or whether it's a sit and go or an MTT. He's really asking about um, our ranges. And when we talk about, so the principal difference between nine handed and six max is that in six max, there's only, there's only six seats at the table. So the big blind, the small blind, the button, that's three. 
And all that leaves is the cutoff, the hijack, and the low jack. So you can think about that on a nine-handed table. You've basically just eliminated under the gun, early position one and early position two. So when, when we talk about opening ranges and the ranges around a shorthanded table, just think about it as though early position doesn't exist anymore. And under the gun is really the low jack. So when we talk about under the gun ranges, I, you really shouldn't be thinking about, oh, I'm the one who's to the left of the big blind. What you should really be thinking about is like how many players are between me and the button to my left. And uh, playing six-handed, when you're in the low jack, you should have a much, much wider opening range than under the gun nine-handed. Part of that's because with fewer cards in play, the odds of someone behind you having a big pair are smaller. Um, that's the, and I think that's what we're getting at here with the marbles jam. So um, maybe we could just talk about that a little bit because I think the problem that some people make is that they open up their ranges very, very wide. And one easy way to think about it is just to, just to eliminate those early position ranges from your game and start from there. Just pretend that you're in the low jack from, from under the gun. Does anyone else have any tips like that or ways of thinking about it? This helped. I, the way I, agree. I oh, go ahead, Rob. Yeah, I agree 100%. You just take the ranges that you've been playing with. You know, you, you always have those ranges for each position, right? And you just take those ranges and you just lop off the first three. They don't exist anymore. And you just go with those ranges. So nothing else really changes that much in a standard MTT type format. As far as bet sizing and all of that other things, it all depends on um, your chart. I mean, the charts that you're using. The only, have, the only thing uh, okay, I would say, ahead, okay. the only thing I would say is that I, I agree, but anything like the way I think of six max is anything that's sort of like right on the fringe, right on the edges, I'm going to play because the blinds are coming around more often. And I, it's, it's going to take a little bit, you're going to have to be a little bit more aggressive to keep up with, with the blinds. You don't have those three players in a nine handed table that are sort of protecting you and letting you fold a lot. And so, um, I, 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 anything that's slightly like you don't go crazy, but just things that are right on the margins, uh, I'm more likely to play them either to three bet them, to open them, to be a little bit more aggressive in a six max format, just because um, the blinds are looming more and more quickly. Kim, did you have to jump in there? Do you want to jump? I in? do. I have something to say about live six max tournaments, which is what this was. I think Canterbury. Yes. Yeah, it yes. is. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So I, my experience is that in live six maxes, the player pool tends to be a higher caliber player. They're players that like to play poker. They want to play hands of poker. And you don't have and 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 the field in general is just a tougher field. So I think you can't just play it exactly like you were in the low jack of a regular on a regular table. Because mm. these players want to see action, they want to play. So that's just something to take into consideration. Um, and I, I totally agree with you. That's usually true. This may be a uh, state-mandated COVID-type 
situation uh, where I think point. all the tables are forced to be six-handed. Points. So, but it, it it typically if there's a choice and people are choosing to play a six-max tournament, you you're going to be up against a better field. Mm-hmm. And, and those think, players, yes, yeah, I think rough. at Canterbury, you're gonna. This is probably just your standard group of players that you're gonna find at Canterbury anyway. I don't know that it's gonna be much different because they're gonna play whatever is available that day. Right. Yeah. And if, I think they they can only play six max right now. So right. So so then I would tell Marbles Jam, buddy, play in this tournament because what you want is you want to be playing in tournaments where you've thought about the different structure and everyone else is just playing whatever tournament was on that day. So if you got a bunch of people here that are playing nine that are used to playing nine handed only and they haven't thought about the difference. That's a that's an edge that you get to then express. I would absolutely study up on six six max, which is what he's doing. He's writing into his favorite podcast. He's posting in the forums, and hopefully, we can give him a real zinger of, uh, of an answer so he has some success there. Right, and open up the border so I can come and play too. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Open up that border. Uh, so one one point on the six max that I want to get at that Chris Chris was um, talking about earlier. So the blinds are going by faster. And if you want to think about blinds kind of like the rake uh, for, for your hands, is it, there, it's money that you don't get to choose whether you put it in or not. In a normal situation, nine-handed, you'd be paying the rake of one, with no antes of 1.5 big blinds for every nine hands that you saw. So you needed to make that up. You needed to make up that blind and a half, one-ninth every hand, as it were. Now, you're paying that one and a half big blind rake every six hands, which means that one sixth of that is now what you have to make up every hand. And that doesn't sound like a big difference, but we, you know, we talk about long, long term and stacking edges and um, the difference between, you know, the, the, the rake of the blinds on six handed and the rake of the blinds on nine handed just means that you need to make more money out of those other hands uh, so that you're still kind of extracting value from those hands that, that you wouldn't be otherwise. So there, there is a sense of playing wider ranges, not only as an opening range, but also playing wider ranges as, as uh, marbles jam is talking about here. Um, when it comes to big blind defense ranges, three betting frequencies and stuff like that. And I think one of the keys is focusing on the players, like trying to figure out who's comfortable in this format and who isn't. You know, that's going to be a theme for most of the things that we talk about today. And uh, just, you know, pick, <laughs> sounds stupid, but just picking your spots, right? <laughs> um, what do you guys think when it comes to sizing uh, or anything like that? Did, do you, does it make any difference, this kind of thing, six, six max or nine max? No, that doesn't really for me either. That, my sizing has a lot more to do with um, the stack depth than the, than the variant, unless, unless we're talking about heads up specifically or something like that. Yeah. One thing... It- Particularly if this is a normal six match tournament, not a state mandated type of thing, it goes back to what Kim was saying. Just expect there to be more aggression in general in a six max than you would see in a full ring. Not that there necessarily should be, but it's just the type of players that it tends to draw. Yeah, I like that. And um, what about, because we do also, sometimes you see like 10-handed poker and everyone complains about it because you're all squished in next to the people next to you. And, um, I, you know, the, the sort of common advice you hear about that is to tighten up those pre-flop ranges because it's just much more likely that someone has been dealt a big pocket pair 
Um, or it's just an extremely strong hand when you're playing 10 handed than when you are playing six handed. Um, and that's another reason why you can kind of loosen up a bit six handed because it's not just that there's only so many people to act yet. Uh, it's also that there's just fewer cards being dealt out available. So there's just fewer combinations um, to make those, those extremely strong hands. Right. And when you're 10 max and you're and the first four people full, they've probably had crap hands. Mm. So that leaves less crap hands after you to come. So that's one more reason why you should raise, like consider what your raise is going to be. I love that point. There's no folded deuces. I mean, there's still, there's a lot of deuces before you that folded, but not a lot of deuces after you. (laughs) I like that. That's if that makes point. any sense. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> yeah, Rob, ten, ten-handed was, you know, the standard at running aces in Canterbury. I know that um, for the MTTs. Uh, cash games are always nine-handed. Mm-hmm. But for all the tournaments, they always want to pack as many people into a tournament table right. as they can because that's how they make their money, right? Right. The more, the more players they can get in with the fewest dealers that they can get in. So that's just, you know, normal business. What I really like right now is with the with the with the whole COVID thing, and they've opened up a lot of uh, poker in 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 Vegas here where I'm at right now. They all have it's all eight handed. Yeah. So it's all very comfortable. It's all a very comfortable feeling at the table, other than the you know the plexiglass all around you. You can't really talk to your neighbors very easily, but other than that, it's a very comfortable setting to be eight handed at a table. Um, the other day I was reading a discord uh, from an LPP player. You know, we have, we have access now to the LPP discord and he was talking about how do you, how do you define the um, positions that you are in your hand ranges? And he talked about, we always have under the gun in, in a nine handed game, we have under the gun, then we have under the gun two in an eight handed game. We have under the gun two and then, you know, so why not call under the gun two EP? Mm. Then, then it, it stays the same no matter how many players are at the table, right? Because it's not if, if there's eight players under the gun is really under the gun too if you're nine handed. So think of it as early position as being in an eight handed table. Under the gun is actually early position. There is no under the gun at an eight handed table. There's only an under the gun at a nine handed table. Yeah, and I think that's going to be one thing that that the poker world as a whole is going to come up with a better way of yeah. talking about positions. Cause when I've, when I used to be like really nerdy about poker and doing breaking out all these pen and paper graphs and stuff like that, I, my theory was just, just go the other way. Like you should be, yeah. you should, you shouldn't be thinking about your relationship to the blinds on your right. You should be thinking about your relationship to the button on your left. How many Correct. players are between you and the button? And that is how we should be thinking about position. Um, it really doesn't matter. All, that's all that that's all that we should be thinking about and it, it, but it's it's hard to come up with an intuitive way to number it from there um that, it, that counts the blinds and stuff like that so um but yeah that's that's a great point rob and that's position p- you, the relative position is going to be um a relevant factor so i mean i i might even i think i kind of prefer eight-handed personally I like being comfortable and I like not having to wait for super premiums, but I also don't like seeing a blind every third hand. Um, so you might have to sign me up for some, some eight handed next time I come down to visit you down there, Rob. 
see if we can have yeah, some fun. Yeah, it's funny because even online, I've been seeing a lot of uh, tables yeah. now are eight-handed. Yeah. Um, I play ACR and a lot of eight-handed tables. That's almost their standard now. It's very, yeah. very seldom you see a nine-handed table anymore. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't see. We'll see. I don't think we'll see it take off for tournaments because, as you say, Rob, it's not like they make their money from the rake. They make their money no matter how long the tournament takes. They're just going to pay it out. So, um, but I like it for cash. I, I maybe we'll see more of that. So, um, a couple other variations we could talk about. Um, progressive knockouts is one that's very popular. Just knockout or bounty tournaments. They don't have to be progressive. Um, whether they're six-handed or nine-handed, uh, some of the general rules that you'll that might change your play uh, when you're playing knockouts is that you just have to weigh the value of the player's stack um, of the player's bounty uh, particularly when stacks start to get low Um, what that's going to mean is that it's going to be you're incentivized to call all in shoves lighter because it affects your icm you're also as the short stack you have to think about your the effects of you shoving because some people are going to be more inclined to call you when you shove as a short stack because they want to win your bounty. But that means that there's this leveling war a bit between the stacks, I think, because then you're incentivized to only shove when you're very strong. uh, And then you have to trade off. There's that fold equity really comes into it. So the level that your opponent is on matters a great deal. What what other kind of exploits? What about raising? What about raising more when you're, when this uh, blinds have less chips, mm. when you, you mean like cover open, the blinds, like an open raise Opening. sizing. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. No open raising more when you're six max, you're six max or whatever. And you're open raising more, or maybe we're not six max, but open raising when the blinds have less, mm. less of a stack when you cover the blinds. Yeah. Cause you don't mind picking up uh, some of those when they come over the top with uh you mean sort of with the kind of hand that you don't mind calling the shove with, Kim? Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. That's a great exploit. And and I think also there's like a trappiness. Um, there's a trappy element um, that comes into progressive knockouts because you might want to create a situation where that small blind will shove or where that small stack will shove and then you can just come by with a premium hand. Um, so there, that, that's, one, that's one dynamic there, I think. Generally, in a progressive knockout or in a knockout, you want to you're incentivized to get your chips in the middle. If we wanted to make one general rule, it's that you're going to be more likely to get your chips in than in a free suit. Um, isn't, it, isn't it to get your chips in against someone you cover and not against someone that covers you? Right. Yes. 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 Yeah. That's why it's important early on to uh, be very aggressive and chip up. In a normal MTT, when you're at 100 big blinds, you may, in the early stages, you may play a little tighter than normal just because you don't want to risk those chips um, for, you know, in marginal situations. But in a, in a PKO, you want to build up those chips so that you have more chips than everybody else at the table. So you are, tend to be more aggressive early on in a PKO because of that. Yep, I like that. Um, and then on the other end of the spectrum, uh, we'll talk a bit about satellites. So satellites, there's, there's essentially what we're talking about when we say a satellite is any, any tournament where the, the top, the, the prizes are all the same. 
And it doesn't matter how many chips you have when the last person who bubbles gets eliminated. All that matters is that everyone who advances wins the same prize. And typically it's entry into another tournament. So we can talk about it like that if it matters, but we won't talk about why we're in the satellite, but we'll just talk about the strategy. Um, the strategy in satellites matters a lot according to your stack size relative to the stacks at the table and relative to the average chip stack in the tournament as you get closer and closer to the bubble point. Um, so it's one of the only times where you actually really care uh, about the stack sizes on other tables in other parts of the tournament. It's always something that should be on your mind, but in a satellite, you really want to be hyper-conscious of what are the short stacks out there? How close are they to busting when the next blind increase comes? Um, because if you can in a satellite, what you want to do to get is get to the point where you can fold to the money. You want to build up enough chip stacks and you want to build up a high enough chip stack that you can then predict what the chip stack's going to be when the bubble bursts. Cause you can just do some math on the number of entries and the number of prizes. And it, and then you're going to deduct the blinds that come out of your uh, stack every round between now and then every orbit. But you can kind of get a sense of, okay, if I get this up to 30,000 chips, um, then I can basically just fold to, to the prize. And you don't benefit from having any more chips than one at the end. I think uh, Daryl Kearney said something like, you calculate what the average stack will be at the bubble when it breaks. And if you have three quarters of those chips, then you can sort of sit back and relax. Exactly. That's exactly what he said. Nice. Okay. Oh, I read it so long ago. <laughs> yeah, that's good. It stuck with you. I like no, that. I, that's, that's exactly what I remember. You know, you look at what the average chip stack is. If you have 75% of that, you can pretty much fold to the bubble. Yeah. And, and the reason that folding to the bubble is nice is because it just takes variance out of the play, out of the game. What you don't want to be, and it, you will be anyway, most of the time, but what you don't want to be is one of those players who has to win a few more chips to make it past the bubble. Because in order to win a few more chips, you have to risk some chips. And even the best investment you can make in the world in poker is going to be 80-20, and you're still going to lose that tournament sometimes, or you're going to lose some chips that time and not, and not make the bubble. So there's a real... In, in knockouts, there was an incentive to kind of get your chips involved. In a satellite, you really don't want to get your chips involved um, unless you're a clear favorite. There's a really good spot to do it, um, uh, you're, period. If you, if you have enough chips to survive the bubble, you fold aces pretty play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This isn't hyperbole. There's um, no, no reason to, to risk yeah. chips no matter what. Yeah, and I've seen so many giant monster stacks blow up in satellites for just no reason right so, yeah but it's yep. it's astounding and you're sitting there when you've got like five or six big blinds and there's just like there's somebody with 80 that's just putting them all in the middle and you're like okay good, thank you thank you <laughs> or maybe you may have aces but thank you whatever you're doing here yep. is good for everything so <laughs> and then and then um does anyone have any thoughts on what happens differently when the bubble does get closer or, or, or what are some exceptions to that? Like, is there, is there a time when you do have to take a stand or uh, how, how do you guys think about that? No. <laughs> <laughs> so I was in this big live tourney for a 3k seat at the Venetian and the, the blinds had just passed me 
and I had ace queen. Uh, ace queen. And I thought, and I was the, I could see around that I was like one of the shortest stacks, but I couldn't see the other tables because we were playing live. So there were still three tables left. Mm. So I couldn't really see. I was definitely the shortest at my table. And I figured I was one of the shortest in the tournaments, but I just, it folded to me and I just shoved. And then I got called by Ace King, of course, in the big blind. But my point was, that I, it was the bubble, the stone cold bubble. And I could have folded and like, because I, the button had just passed me and just waited. And, and I'm sure I could have just satellited in, even though I was one of the shortest stacks. Yep. So it's so much, it's so much depends on position and what position you are in the tournament, not your position chip stack wise, but your position um, on where you are mm. on the table mm -hmm. and how many tables there are and how close you are to the bubble. And you just fold everything. Yep. Well, let's hear what our friend Jonathan Little has to say. And then um, I want to talk a little bit about tanking and some other aspects of that when it comes to satellite tournaments. Here we go. Oh. Have you ever wondered whether you should call a preflop raise or three bet instead? What do you do when you have a flush draw? Do you raise it or do you just call? What do you do with ace king when you miss the flop? Are you tired of guessing about what the right play is with your particular hand? Well, my name is Jonathan Little and I am a two-time World Poker Tour champion and creator of PokerCoaching.com where we offer over a thousand interactive hand quizzes where you play a hand and then get real-time feedback from our world-class pros. Don't guess and don't stress. Just register for your free account at pokercoaching.com slash recpoker right now. There we go, the man himself. So uh, we're just wrapping up on satellites specifically. And um, Kim mentions this example where let's say there's three or four or five tables left in the tournament. You're on the stone cold bubble. You've got a short chip stack. And let's say, let's say that you you can look around and see all the other tables and you can see that there's a couple other chip stacks out there that are a little shorter than you. So I don't have a position on this. Even if there's none shorter than you though. Yeah, fair, fair. Even if there's none. Yeah, that's a good point. Because uh, cause someone, aces can run into kings on another table with two medium stacks and you know all it takes is yep. you just not getting involved to win. And, and like Chris said, there's guys that will inadvertently for whatever reason Jump, dump off a whole stack yep. for, for no reason when they could have just folded into the money. Yeah. And so I want to I talk a little bit about um, stalling. I just had to take a minute there. Uh, what we're basically doing is, is anytime you are intentionally drawing time out while you're not actively making a decision, it, it, it's not really a, an issue in most tournaments until you're at the bubble or at a big pay jump. And it's, it's kind of this jerk thing where, uh, you know, you're taking a lot of time on a decision because you're just hoping that on the other tables, action will go by a little faster. They'll eat a few more antis. Maybe someone will bust. And there's this tension between we never want anyone to feel rushed. We want people to feel like they have time to make the decisions and even to have like a balanced amount of thought on every decision point. But there's clearly an element of, there's something icky about intentionally taking more time than you need just to stall the tournament. Um, has you anyone just thought call it a jerk thing? 
Did you just call it a jerk thing? I think when it becomes abusive, <laughs> it is a jerk thing. Because because a strategy. It, it is. is a tournament strategy. It is, but but and there's you a have to employ it. But there's a reciprocal aspect to it that I think like it. No. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Chris, jump in. I, I, you know, I think um, well-run tournaments will be watching for it. Any player at the table can call the clock. Some tournaments are starting to shift to having shot clocks. Um, so, but I, I, I am not going to hesitate to call the clock. And I know that there's like this sort of like unwritten. But if I see somebody who's abusing this and is like taking five minutes to make a you know a pre-flop fold, I'm going to call the clock on them. And you know. They're gonna they're gonna glare at me and they're gonna be annoyed and I'm gonna be like <laughs> you can stall and I can call the clock and that's how this game works but uh, we you know um, yeah those are those are both fair parts of the game right? I like, would call you? the jerk part the calling the clock part <laughs> uh, <laughs> those are the big those are the big stacks calling the clock yeah, I mean it, but it really depends though I mean so let's take it out of a, a bubble scenario. Uh, and if you're just normally playing, um, there are players who are so slow that it will decimate the game, particularly if it's a cash game. If you don't, if you're not a winning player and people who are, are making it so that the game is not fun to be at, then that's definitely a jerk move. Um, I absolutely agree, John. Right. So, so there, there, that is one end of the spectrum. That is clearly a jerk move. However, within the rules of poker, you are allowed to take a what is considered an adequate amount of time. An adequate amount of time is not defined. So I understand this staying, stating that it is a, um, a strategy. And so I'm not disagreeing with that however for myself i i tend to act too quickly to begin with because i don't want to ever be stalling the game i would rather play more hands even if it's to my strategic detriment uh i will always i i just don't stall i've never stalled for strategic purposes in my life i have because I didn't notice it was on me or I really didn't know what to do and I couldn't figure it out. But if I'm actually stalling, it's because I am thinking or something along those lines. And I completely agree with you that that's that stalling is like a really unnecessary part of the game, except <laughs> on the satellite bubble um, or in a, in a, on a money bubble. And then it's absolutely a tournament strategy. It is part of tournament strategy. And, and it's the reason why we have these, these rules of etiquette, right? Where there's this expectation that you'll take a reasonable amount of time. There's an enforcement mechanism in calling the clock. And, and it has to be a kind of soft gray area of case-by-case -case application because different decisions are going to take longer for different people. Different parts of the tournament are going to take a while. And just to be clear... When, what I'm saying was Jerka is is the the people that are taking it beyond the level of uh, like and that's when I say stalling I really mean stalling to the point of 
of abuse. Otherwise, you're really just taking your time. So I, I think they should like start bubbles online at five. Five to the money or five to the satellite bubble or oh, whatever Oh, go hand for hand, you mean? Hand you for say, hand. Yeah, hand, hand for hand. For hand. Yeah. Like go hand for hand then. Yeah. I mean, it's really a very, very difficult thing to do at something like the WSOP main event. You can't yeah. do it until you get close. You have to, like fire a shot um, in the air so everyone right. knows that. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, online, they can start up way before they do. And then... I've been in so I play so many satellites, so I understand this satellite, this this tanking stuff, and I think that they could certainly start hand for hand way before they do. Yeah. And the other thing, because I've been I I have been once in my so when I went and played in the WSAP main event, I satellited in, and I was in a very uncomfortable situation in that satellite where players at the table were openly talking to each other mm. about how it, it, it was, I would say it was, it was pretty much outright collusion between the players at my table saying they, they said, I read somewhere. They didn't say like, we should stall the game, but they said, I read somewhere in a book one time where somebody took a long time to make a decision what if we all tried that or something like did, that? It was did like you this, read like, that book? Did you also yeah, read, did that, you read book? that book? Yeah. Have you read that book? Have you yeah. read that book? And it was like they had the plausible deniability, but it <laughs> felt, I just felt like this is not. And the dealer called the floor and the floor didn't know how to deal with it. And I was like, I do. I, I don't want to be disqualified. I am like three people away from making the main event here. And like people. So like I, so I, I just, I do feel like there is a point where we do need pe people have to move in a satellite too. Yeah. Well, is that another... like, it's not like saying in like, uh, I've heard about these satellites and if we all keep folding to the big blind, yeah. we're all going to make it in. To yeah. The right. Next right. That's stage. the same kind of deal. And right? that kind of conversation was happening too. Yeah. In uh, here in Minnesota, running aces uh, runs a tournament series that, um, if you make multiple stacks into day two, they will buy oh, back yeah. the stack for like $1,200, which is triple or yeah, it's like uh, three buy-ins. Yeah, three and a half buy-ins maybe even. It's because they're $250 tournaments. Is that what they typically are? But anyway, so there is a strategic advantage right towards the end of the night when you're getting ready to bag. Um you see a lot of slow play and it's almost so bad that I hate playing those tournaments, um, particularly because normally when I play them, I rarely have the opportunity to fire more than one bullet. So I'm not in the situation where I've already bagged another bag. And now this is $1,200 worth of chips sitting on the table. All I need to do is eke it out to the end of the night. So, but I, I totally understand people who do it and I, I can't really blame them i just i wish shot clocks or something like that would get in there so because then if everyone's on an even field then everyone has an even shot right now if you don't stall in those situations you're putting yourself at a big disadvantage and that's what i really like least about it is that it creates this race to the bottom where now because i think we i'm with kim let's just go hand for hand and i guess just for our listeners so 
what happens is if you get close to the button to, to prevent this being a problem or for multiple people going out on the same hand and having to figure out who was the bubble person, um, they just go hand for hand. And what that means is that for all the tables in the tournament, they don't deal a new hand until the last hand's finished on all the tables in the tournament. So that you can only have one hand at a time. Uh, so that makes it clear um, the order in which people went out of the tournament. And it makes it unnecessary to stall at all um, or to tank because you are, uh, yeah, the next hand's not going to start until the next, until all the tables are finished anyway. So let's be clear. There's a little, still a little tanking because if somebody goes all in at one table, you will might wait and tank to see if that person is going to get called and what yep. might happen at that table before you play. But for the, for, for the general rule, it speeds up the game a lot. Mm. Although yep. like at the WSOP, when you have an all in and they're on the bubble, they're instructed to stop and not deal once an all in has occurred and there is no more action. For, for so they'll actually, right. They'll hold all of the tables till everyone has gotten their all ins. Then they'll run those out and then they'll do the rest. Right. right. <laughs> so no, I'm just talking happen. about online where we can all see what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. Tables. So, yeah. Yeah. That's and, true. And, and, and it does, you do create these sort of these moments of collusion. You know, we, we talk about collusion a lot and it's not, um, it's not a common part of poker, but it's most common around these bubbles these final tables, these satellites bursting where, you know, someone's going to be the odd man out and um, that can, that can listen. And, and if you're playing in a, in a card room, that's not your local card room. Um, you know, I, I don't play live enough to be an, an authority on this, but you know, the other time you can get some kind of collusion in those moments is between friendly players that all know each other and the staff. And, you know, maybe they'd rather that they were the ones that won the tournament ticket as well like that. So it's, it's just, it's an area, the, the, the bubble is an area where you are the only one who's on your side and, you know, take as long as you need to make the decisions that you think are right. And as long as you are not intentionally, you know, injuring other people with that, then I'm not going to call you a jerk and we can uh, get into some of the gray area on either side of that. The last thing I'll say is I think there's a big difference between stalling post-flop and stalling pre-flop. Yeah. It's the it's the it's the pre-flop stalls that that uh, really get under my skin because like post-flop, there's a lot of decisions. There's bi there's big decisions to make, but when yeah, yeah, I'm I don't know. I can't wait for the day of shot clocks. Let's just bring them in. They're easy to to install. You can have a little iPad right on the table. You hit a button, it resets. Let's go. I'm with you. Especially if we can make it easy for the dealer. That's the only thing yeah, I don't want to make. I don't want to make it any harder for the dealer. Tap, yeah. tap the button. I mean, I, dealers are wonderful and they put it through <laughs> a lot of work. I'm not saying it's that easy because it adds one more thing that they have to do. Yeah. And I respect the hell out of everybody who deals because it's such uh, I, I just I appreciate the fact that they do that. So I don't want to diminish it too much, but they do have an app. It has one button or two <laughs> buttons. It's like reset and start. And so it's it's not that much more to their job. Yeah. So you don't want to diminish it at all, clocks. but yeah. you do want to diminish it. <laughs> that, I diminish it. I just want to say, like, I feel like they can do it. They're capable human beings that I think the world of, and they can do it. <laughs> there you go. You have faith in them is what you're yes. saying, Chris. I'm all, I'm all for shot clocks, but if everybody other table is tanking, you're doing yourself a disservice if you're not also tanking. 
Yes. So, That's so true. clearly, I think what we all agree on is it's kind of the tragedy of the commons. It, you know, if 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 we could just cure poker of the tanking illness, none of us would need to tank, and play would be faster, and we'd all have a better time. But because some people are tanking, we are now in a situation where we are occasionally benefited by also tanking. And that's that's a calculation that we all have to make. I'll tell you one thing. Um, it's for the same reason that, that you should take as long as you need. You should also call the clock whenever you like. Um, if you feel like someone is taking too long, it's just as much your right to call the clock on them as it is for them to take as long as they want to make a decision. And then the, the card room is going to have a rule for what happens then. And, and, and that is a rule that will get applied to everybody. So as long as you're not going to jerk. Have you ever been at the short stack at the table and everybody snap folds and you're yeah. in the bubble? Yeah. You're the short stack? Well, They're snap folding because you're the short stack. So you I have to tank. I sure wish in the earlier stages of the tournament, I'd made some different plays. So I wasn't the short stack in that position. Because when you're the short stack on the satellite, yeah, it's a tough spot, of course. Um, but yeah, I hear you, Kim. I hear what you're saying. I know what's going on over there. I just want people to know that they shouldn't feel bad about doing it. Because it is a real tournament strategy sure. in, in, in context, in yes. context. Yes. And it's something you should do all the time. Yeah. So. Yeah. Just like, just, <laughs> no, I'm not going to go there. <laughs> I think that's right. It's one of those gray areas where everyone has to decide for themselves, but just understand, I guess what I'm saying is understand that there's, there is an, uh, a spectrum to it. And I think, you know, there's some, there's some bad blood on one end of the spectrum there. That, that people should just be aware of. And you might get some stuff thrown at you. You might, online. especially online. <laughs> you might get some stuff thrown at you in the home game. That's for sure. All right. Well, I want to talk about a few other variants, but Lord knows we spent enough time on this one. Maybe we'll save that for a whole other episode. We can talk about um, some shorthanded, some cash versus tournament play, some double or nothings and stuff like that. Uh, maybe we'll do that next time. But in the meantime, I'd like to thank John, Kim, and Rob, website AMP, uh, Running Aces Hotel, Racetrack and Casino, Taylor Moss and Stu, and everyone else. Thanks a lot. We'll see you again soon.